Welcome to the Legal Services Board series of podcasts on developing approaches to regulation for the use of technology in legal services. Applications of technologies, like artificial intelligence and blockchain, are increasingly enabling lawyers to provide services to their clients in new and innovative ways and have the potential to transform the market for legal services in England and Wales. In this series of podcasts, the LSB will be speaking to experts on legal services, technologies, and regulation about the challenges that new technologies present to legal services regulation and how legal services regulators in England and Wales can approach these challenges. Hello, I'm David Fowlis, a Regulatory Policy Manager at the Legal Services Board, and I'm joined today by Roger Brownsword, Professor of Law at King's College London. We're going to discuss how technology is being used and regulated in other professional services sectors in the UK and what lessons legal services regulators can learn from the experience of other professions. Roger, if you want to perhaps introduce yourself, thank you. Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, Well, my name is Roger Brownsword, and as an academic lawyer, I've been interested in researching law, regulation and technology for about 30 years. My interest initially was in the patentability of uh, new products and processes uh, arising from genetic engineering, so it was in the area largely of health and environment and biotechnologies. But over the years, my interest has become much more general as more technologies have come onto the radar. So, you know, information technologies and e-commerce and then nanotechnologies and neurotechnologies and the most recent stuff, of course, about AI and machine learning, blockchain, additive manufacturing, AV and goodness knows what that is now on the on the regulatory radar. Um, it's against that background that um, I was very pleased indeed to accept the invitation to write a paper for the Legal Services Board exploring what regulators within the legal services sector could learn about the regulation of new technologies from other service sectors. Well, Roger, very many thanks for joining us today. Before we get into detail, it'd be really helpful to understand which professional sector's experience of technology and regulation you consider to be most relevant to legal services and why that is. Well, before I wrote the paper, um, I would have not known quite how to answer that question. And even having written it, it's still, again, quite a tricky one. Uh, the, the main candidates do seem to be health, medicine and um, finance. In health and medicine, there's a long experience of, of engaging with new technologies, so particularly biotechnologies, but also sure. you know, in information technologies. And in finance, again, considerable record of engaging with new technologies. And, and in both cases, we're now talking about engagement with AI and, well, in, in finance, blockchain. So they're important sectors, I think, important comparisons for the law. Okay, great. If we look to the medical sector, what technologies are being used in this sector and what issues has their use raised for consumers of medical services and practitioners? Okay, that's quite a long question. Sure. Break that one down. So first of all, the the technologies being used, well, there's a very, very broad sweep of new technologies, of technologies employed in in medicine, in research, in clinics, in, 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 well, in reproductive settings. They're bio, info technologies, imaging technologies, nanotechnologies of employment, nanomedicines, uh, robotics. I mean, anybody who hasn't seen the Da Vinci robot in operation on YouTube should have a look Mm. at that. It's wondrous to see how it uh, peels a grape. Well, I think the hope today is that with the use of AI and big data sets and an improved understanding of genetics, this will lead to more personalised treatments. So there's, there's a very broad sweep of technologies. Almost anything you can think of is, is potentially applicable in health, and we're keen to exploit these technologies there. The question of what issues have they raised, for, first of all, for consumers of medical services, and then for the practitioners? Well, for consumers, the dominant issues, of course, in health are about patient health and safety, not harming people, not killing them. Sure. We, don't, we don't want dangerous technologies. But there are also been concerns 
concerns here about the way in which some research and some treatments impinge on fundamental values like human dignity. Wherever digital technologies are being employed, as they are, of course, increasingly in health, then there are concerns about the security of information, about hacks and viruses and whatnot, of course, about privacy and data protection. So it's not all sweetness and light. I mean, one commentator says that the reality is behind the facade of superficial wonder, modern hospital IT is too complicated for its own good, for the good of patients and for the good of staff. So there are plenty of issues there. And of course, although AI is only recently coming onto the radar as an applicable technology, there have already been, well, scandals, shall I say, in relation to agreements made between the Royal Free Hospital and Google DeepMind mm -hmm. about the use of patient data. I mean, although it's a bit unusual, there are also concerns in the health sector about financial interest for consumers because there's a concern that consumers shouldn't be spending their money unwisely. And, and the market for IVF in particular, it really is a business. Right. And, you know, the worries there that the consumers are spending more money than they probably should. On the other hand, for practitioners, let's start with researchers in health. I hope this is unfair to say, but they seem to complain a lot about the research pathway for okay. um, research approval. And, you know, it is time consuming. They have to go through all sorts of hoops, over hurdles, mountains of paperwork. But if the regulatory aspiration is as it is, which is to, of course, encourage innovation, but at the same time to make sure the interests of prospective patients aren't being jeopardised. You can't just wave things through. There has to be some ex-ante uh, checking, uh, ex-post reporting. I mean, this is a burden, a regulatory burden that falls on researchers and on, on practitioners. And there's an interesting reflection on this by Simon Fischel, who, um, he was one of the pioneers with Steptoe and Edwards of IVF. And in a recently published autobiography, he says this, that to develop something innovative that will help people in a way that's not been done before, we need to do new things. These new things may not work, and they might even offend people. That's something else again. But mm -hmm. the regulator doesn't like that uncertainty. But how can we know if they work on humans unless we try them on humans? You can see the Catch-22 situation I've worked in for most of my career. And then, here's a thought. In regulatory countries such as the UK... IVF couldn't be invented today. The regulatory bodies that govern medical research would forbid it. So, you know, this is the view of a researcher who's saying mm -hmm. regulation doesn't actually help us versus the view of the regulators and probably the Consumer and Patients Association who think that, by and large, we couldn't manage without regulation. And it's the regulatory apparatus here that's given the UK the reputation that it has, you know, a good regulatory environment for health research. We probably partly answered this already, but how have medical regulators responded to the introductions of technology and if we took for example ai as a as an example and the issues that it's raised what approaches are they taking there so regulators in the medical sector are characteristically precautionary and and of course the, the precaution means that where something gets through the net and they need to adjust the regulatory framework they do this it's not ai but the example of the pip breast implants is a good illustration of right. how something that has gone seriously wrong with this product it's gone through the regulatory system and we now have well a new medical devices regulation in europe which is extended to cover cosmetic or aesthetic devices mm -hmm. but your question about ai well it's still relatively early days in relation to ai and okay. in Europe, the European Union set up a high-level expert group on the ethics of AI. And there's been a huge amount of focus on, on the ethical questions arising from AI. Sure. Well, I mean, I say ethical in a, in a very broad sense, ethical. They, these are questions about what does AI need to look like in its operation for it to be socially acceptable? Mm -hmm. So we have this couple of months ago report from the high-level expert group on basic principles for trustworthy AI, which is advocating a human-centric approach 
and this sort of thing. And that's almost echoed to the word by the OECD in a, in a report that's come out within the last fortnight, mm-hmm. uh, where again they're saying just the same sort of things. Here in the UK, we don't have a standard operating procedure for dealing with new tech like AI. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was on the um, on the Royal Society Working Party on Machine Learning because mm-hmm. I think it's a machine learning aspect of AI that makes it really interesting. But you know, this is quite fortuitous in a way, or spontaneous. You know, the parliamentary committees that look at the AI as well, uh, and there's a certain sort of I'd say convergence towards these ideas about transparency, qua openness, transparency for explainability, transparency for how can you justify deciding the case this way. But I think David, it's still pretty early days for AI. And in in the UK, AI's got caught up as well in reflective thinking about data governance more generally. Uh, And certainly the Royal Society Working Party was very mindful that at the same time there was a working party on data governance in, in operation. And I did hear at the time the data governance people were saying, well, should we do something like another Warnock committee? which was parliamentary committee to look at IVF. Well, that took two years for that committee to deliberate. It took five years then for parliament to discuss and debate it before Mm -hmm. the legislation came into place. So probably 10, 12 years before IVF first came on the radar. Now, I just don't think that kind of time frame is feasible for uh, AI. We can't sit on our hands and deliberate for 12 years while the rest of the world is. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think, although we'll, we'll get to this later on, regulators in the legal services sector we'll find by the time that they are seriously engaging with AI that a lot of the preparatory work has probably been done elsewhere. One thing is interesting what you said there because I think from the legal side of things, we tend to think of medicine as an area where there's obviously been a technological development over centuries, decades. And it's interesting that even when confronted with something like AI, Mm. there wasn't an approach, there wasn't a a way for the sector to say, okay, this is a new thing, how do we handle it? It's just an interesting observation because... Obviously, in legal legal sector, technology is quite new. Yeah, there aren't many things that lawyers do today that yeah. they would couldn't have been done perhaps with a pen and ink uh, and paper. But it's, it's just interesting that despite the fact that you have, I guess, medical devices regulation yeah. and you have yeah. drug regulation, yeah, yeah. there wasn't a, an was it was it because it fell between stools in some way? Did it not fit into a criteria, or was it just that? AI was just so different. I'm not sure about this. There are, there are some technologies, and AI is definitely one of them, which have across-the-board potential applications. Yeah. They don't neatly fall into anybody's regulatory jurisdiction, yeah. as it were. And it might be, in a sense, too many possible candidates to be dealing with this. On the right. other hand, it might be, as you say, that this slips through the cracks. And uh, But I think, again, there is a certain reluctance to institute new regulatory arrangements for a technology, unless you're convinced that we can't already handle it through existing tests. Yeah. So, you know, Which so is unreasonable. Yeah, I mean, the view from the, again, going back to the Royal Society Working Party and Machine Learning, the view there was that we need to get the general principles for data, data collection and data processing right. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the general data protection regulation in Europe is a very important new piece of law there. So that will regulate how the data is collected so that for AI and machine learning you need all the training data and big data sets to do the job. So the thought was that that might be sufficient and then you would have a kind of domain specific regulation that was sensitive to the context in which AI was being applied. Now I've got to say that I was never (laughs) entirely convinced that that was right. I thought maybe AI went beyond simple questions of data governance. I mean particularly where you're talking about the kind of processing of data that can't really be explained Um, and that seemed to me to be a bit of a leap into the dark. Do medical regulators concerns about AI, do they relate say from the practitioner perspective? Is there a concern that you would have practitioners 
relying too much on the AI yeah. when making diagnosis and that. Yeah, okay, okay, so sticking to medicine, yes. I, I'm sure that wherever there's a diagnostic and then an advisory sort of role to be played by the professional, there is a concern that we become over-reliant on AI. Mm-hmm. I think that there's also a concern that to the extent that um, AI is being sold not so much as a professional aid for practitioners, but as a product for consumers to right. add on to Alexa or whatever it might be at mm-hmm. home, and you know you get your get your home diagnosis through through a smart device, sure. then again, you well, I'm not sure that becoming over-reliant will be the problem there, but just how accurate, how, for example, I heard a doctor some time ago who was also interested in development of AI tools talking about an, an app on your phone which had a store of photographs of marks on, on people's skins which mm-hmm. might be worrying them. And well, maybe I ought to see the doctor and ask whether this is something that needs treating. So you take a photograph of whatever it is that's troubling you, and then the AI would check it out with its library and tell you it's benign or you ought to, you really ought to get, you know, get further mm-hmm. investigation. I mean, some people worry about that, particularly if it's, you ought to get this checked out mm-hmm. without having a medical counselor there at the time. So I think that there are several dimensions of concern about AI just so, plugging so, into. So again, it's that human interaction or interaction yeah, with the professional. Yeah, exactly. At some stage, would need to be a, some human interaction you might say to validate the diagnosis in the first place but just the human interaction itself as you say is something people will value where particularly where the news is worrying (laughs) is there an overall rationale to how medical regulation works in perhaps in terms of protecting consumers but is there a basis in which uh, regulation tends to tends to be founded and then is applied well i think there are two things here david i mean one one i was going to start off earlier on with a very helpful comment by martin wheatley about five years Mm -hmm. ago from the FCA. FCA. And, you know, Martin is saying that we, we've got all these technologies now promising new beneficial developments for consumers in finance. The phrase he used is, we, we don't want this to be a tech wild west. So yeah. we have to monitor this. We have to regulate it. On the other hand, and this is the other whole of, of the dilemma, we don't want to over-regulate to the point where innovators are put off innovating. And so I think that the rationale underpinning the approach in all these sectors, including medicine, is that there's something of a seesaw here where you don't want to overburden innovators or researchers and developers with regulatory requirements, lest they don't innovate at all. But on the other hand, you're concerned that if you lighten that load, then you expose consumers to risks, or it might even be the whole integrity of the system. Sure. You know, so you, you can't just be too laissez-faire about, although, you know, as I say, Europe has the reputation of being very precautionary, so it is very sensitive to that. Whereas in the States, the caricature perhaps is of a or stereotype is of, of a regulatory system that's much more the other way. You know, let the internet develop was the philosophy. We yes. don't need to regulate it. And then we worry about any problems that it gives rise to as and when we meet them. If we look at the lessons that, say, the legal services sector could learn from medical regulation in yeah. this history, what, what do you think those are? So because medicine is very much concerned with, well, medical regulation is very much orientated towards protecting the health and safety of patients. And because there have been some hard cases about fundamental values in medicine, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I could say that that stuff actually doesn't really impact very, or help legal regulators very much because okay. it's telling them how to tackle problems that they are not actually going to have to face very often. Right. I mean, I just don't think legal services are going to come up with those. But I still think that you know the precautionary approach that is characteristic of European health regulation is something that legal services regulators should take note of mm-hmm. because um, some of these technologies, um, particularly AI, are really unknown quantities. Don't know, what, like Stephen Hawking said in you know, his valedictory right. book, we don't really know whether this is the 
best thing ever or the worst thing ever for humanity. Yeah. So, so I mean, you mentioned uh, earlier on that um, the human interaction is something that people might value in, mm -hmm. in some sense. I mean, in legal services, sure, they they, they might value this. Uh, in the paper, I talk about a case from California that was reported where a family visiting this older guy in hospital, yes. you know, uh, Ernest Quintana, and um, they're shocked to find that uh, there's a robot in his room conveying the news that the medics really can't do any more for Ernest and he'll be dying very shortly. Although he has had actually face-to-face -face interaction at some mm. earlier stage, apparently. The family aren't aware of that at the time. I mean, even then, knowing that, they still don't think that this was the right thing to do. No. There's also the concern, isn't there, that, well, about, about the way in which we rely on technology, which look extremely benign, designed to help us, and we find in the end that we've corroded the context in which we are responsible for our own actions. And, you know, there are deep, deep yeah. lessons like that, just in the way people worry now about what impact... Uh, the internet might be having on uh, on or you know uh, social media sites. What impact are mm. these having on our children? We, we've kind of conducted an, a massive global experiment without really appreciating what sort of impact this might have. Just briefly, um, we've talked a lot about how medical regulators have, have the interests of patients and ultimately consumers of medical services. How important is consultation? in developing regulation in medical services? I, I think consultation is one of the most important things to take into account here. In any sector, the social acceptability of the regulation will hinge on whether uh, the regulators are permitting red lines to be crossed or balancing up interests in a way that are just not acceptable. And they won't really know uh, whether there are red lines out there or whether there are uh, balances that will be unacceptable until they've done some consultation. There's no magic formula for doing the consultation. It has to be done right, sure. of course, yeah. and that's something we could say more about. But, I mean, assuming the consultation is done right and you, you have a fair idea of how how the land lies, then you shouldn't have too many nasty shocks when you when you proceed with the regulation. Care.data in medicine is, is a constant reminder to us mm -hmm. that if you don't do the consultation and the communication right in the first place, then patients might resist... Or consumers might resist and um, frustrate what on paper looks like a really a really smart idea. Okay, well thank you. So Roger, if we now turn to look at the financial sector, yeah. again perhaps similar questions, what technologies are being used here and what issues have their use raised for consumers of financial services and I guess um, practitioners isn't quite the right word, no. but uh, suppliers? Uh, so in, in, in finance, um, uh, you've got Pretty much the whole range of technologies that you find in in medicine, okay. uh, apart from biotech. Although no doubt, you know, there's biometrics in in finance too, mm -hmm. but and not biotech in the, in the same way that it figures in dominates the landscape. Really, I think in um, in medicine, but of course, all the IT stuff is is very much a part of finance and the whole infrastructure for e-commerce and so it's, it's, you know those sort of technologies and uh, of the ones that we you know are interested in right now like AI and machine learning and blockchain mm -hmm. um, well I think blockchain is far more important in finance than it is in medicine right so so you've got a big sweep again here of technologies um, where we're looking at the the issues that these technologies give rise to uh, then for consumers first of all uh, I, I think, again, unlike medicine, where maybe the main risks are health and safety uh, and possibly some fundamental values, here in, in, in finance it's financial. I think that you're going to lose your money if you're not very careful. Right, right? Yeah. You, put, you put your money in the wrong place. So consumer protection for the FCA in, in this sector is very much about protecting financial interests for consumers. Mm -hmm. 
and whilst lots of money can be made on, uh, on Bitcoin or whatever other ventures you're in, it can also be massively lost. Sure. Uh, and where people, well, in the paper, I talk about a hack of Mt. Cox in 2014, I think at that time, the largest exchange in the world, where very large sums of money were lost by people who were investing there. For practitioners, I think there's, again, I'm not familiar with this sector, so I'm not sure whether practitioners complain or suppliers complain as much about the, the pathway to approval as in um, medicine, mm -hmm. where researchers, as I say, are notorious for thinking that the, the regulatory burden there is too high. But, I mean, clearly, uh, when you read the background to the sandbox, yeah. there you can see that the intention is to try to make the regulation more proportionate relative to the risks and, and ease the, the way in for, you know, the approval. I mean, to me, on paper, the approval process looks pretty extensive and intensive demanding for okay. suppliers. So I can imagine that there's some concern that it, for the sake of protecting consumers, the FCA or other regulators are asking too much of new entrants into the into this sector. The, for suppliers, of course, there are, well, responded to the security risks. Mm -hmm. And again, there is a concern that um, the legal position is unclear in in many respects in relation to these new products that are coming on with blockchain right it's not just in the uk in in all legal systems in the world mm -hmm. regulators asking them a question how does our regulatory regime map onto this new stuff and it doesn't always fit very neatly i mean some sometimes of course there will be immediate responses to prohibit or permit or whatever it might be but so i think for suppliers there is in this sector some uncertainty about exactly what the legal position is. We just maybe just talk about blockchain for a moment. Yeah. Is there something particularly novel about it um, <laughs> that makes it challenging for financial regulators or that regulators have had to, that's really different from what they've dealt with before as far as, I guess, a trend, technologies protect transaction, how transactions have been done previously? Yeah, I think, well, there might be. Uh, I think the blockchain technology itself, unless you're a cryptographer, mm -hmm. is probably a bit puzzling. The early accounts of blockchain where it's just blockchain and Bitcoin yeah. are extremely puzzling as to exactly how these mining activities, I mean, how the how Bitcoins are produced and mm -hmm. exactly what sort of a money system this is. That's all pretty puzzling. And I think of all the technologies that we talk about, this is perhaps the most difficult one to get your head around initially. But once you've got your head around that the, the basic idea of blockchain and then the possibility of applications running on blockchain, yeah. then it looks a bit more like the internet because you've got an infrastructure here mm -hmm. and you can build on that to, to do all sorts of, of different kinds of transactions or okay. activities. I mean, to that extent, it's, you know, it raises the same sort of issues as the internet, that um, these potential applications are a bit uncertain. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you think there have been, it's a case perhaps of regulators con being concerned more about the, ac the activities and the applications that blockchain is used for rather than the technology itself. Yeah, I would I would be inclined to say that, but I don't know. I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm mindful that the genesis of blockchain seems to be a reaction to the global financial crisis and people saying, you know, the originators saying you can't trust the traditional banking sector. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes less of an argument sort of against it, but, but we don't actually need these intermediaries who, you know, we can do it ourselves. Yeah. So I, I suppose this is a bit unusual in that it's a technology that seems to be set up against established, against the establishment. Right. I mean, I know in the early days of the internet, the, the cyber libertarians, so-called, were very keen on the idea that this should be an unregulated space mm -hmm. where, you know, you, and indeed could not be regulated. And, and it, might, it, might, it might be that similar thoughts operate in, the, in, in relation to blockchain. But yeah, I think it's probably the applications rather than the technology. Although, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the problems of accessing what's on the blockchain are going to give, I mean, more in the area of security and law enforcement, I would say. Sure.
Yeah, questions then. Obviously, in, in legal services, we have a number of types of transactions. You have conveyancing, you have contracts, you have patents and registry, all of which blockchain could be applicable to. Is there a, perhaps a concern that regulators sometimes want to or become fixated on the technology itself rather than the applications it's being put to use for, which are things which have been done for many, many years? It, it, is, is that something that we've seen in financial ser- services as well? And just what's your view on that? First of all, if, if the application is something that we're familiar with mm-hmm. and, and that the, the technology is a tool which is doing something that's functionally equivalent to what a human operative would have done in the past, right. then that, I think, tends to ease concerns about what's going on here. Yeah. And yeah, in financial services, you would, yeah, okay, you, you would uh, accept that idea. Uh, secondly, some of the functions that we're thinking for blockchains, whether registry functions or record functions, authoritative mm-hmm. records, we do need to be careful about who validates these uh, because, I mean, the original Bitcoin model seems to be allowing the whole world to, to get involved in the, yeah. in the validating network, and that might seem to be not the greatest trust mechanism. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is with contracts, uh, where, as far as you're talking about smart contracts, where payments are being made using blockchain applications, there might be situations where technology does do something which a court would not order to be done. Okay. Um, and the extent to which you've got parallel codes, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, one for blockchain and one for the law of contract and fiat contracts, yes. so that's, that's, that's a question that is currently being explored in the academic literature. Mm-hmm. Roger, just first, I just want to ask again about consumers in financial services and what steps have regulators taken to protect them and how successful have those been? When we start talking today about consumer protection, I think it's important to differentiate between the view that what you're trying to protect is consumers who uh, want to make their own choices in the marketplace but okay. need, need proper information to do that. Mm-hmm. And the responsibility of regulators is largely to make sure that consumers are properly informed. Right. That's what, you know, And of course, if you look at the FCA's webpages, the, you, know, you will see from time to time there are warnings about dangerous investments or risky yeah. Risk, yeah, risky products that uh, consumers need to be aware of, not, not least in the, in the area of crypt- cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. But the other meaning of consumer protection is the more paternalistic meaning that it's not so much letting consumers make their own choices, but actually removing certain choices from the table for consumers yeah. while we think they are overly risky. And in, in the area of medicine or health, where we're worried that some product might actually be dangerous in, to your physical well-being, mm-hmm. It's perhaps more easy to say, well, look, we just shouldn't leave that as a choice for consumers than in finance, where this is, you might think, a very volatile or risky product. And yet, provided consumers know exactly what the score is, then they should make their own call on it. You know, so when you say to what extent are consumers being protected, to really follow that through, you would need to see whether consumers have been informed about the right products Mm -hmm. at the right time and whether there have been certain products taken off the table for consumers. Well, I think, although my understanding is that here the FCA is taking it very steadily indeed in deciding just how to intervene in relation to blockchain and cryptocurrencies, they don't want to stifle what might be potentially beneficial lines of innovation. Mm -hmm. But they are, I mean, I know in several presentations they've given, they've talked about certain sorts of products that they are thinking maybe should be put off limits for consumers altogether. In doing, making, coming to those decisions about what products are maybe just too dangerous for consumers, have they also looked at how much consumers actually understand or demonstrate understanding or can make informed choices? Yeah. 
I'm going to declare a thing, past life here. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time at the CMA yeah. of energy consumers. Yeah. And one of the issues there was that con- consumers found it very difficult to judge whether they should switch yeah. energy suppliers. Yeah. And there were some consumers who, who went and engaged, and there were many yeah. who were just put off by what they saw as the complexity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I imagine that's probably something that happens in financial services. Do we have sort of ideas about how just how much consumers can actually understand and how informed their choices can really be? Or do we, do, are these things tested when, for example, the, the warning notices on financial products are, yeah. are put in front of yeah, consumers? Yeah. I mean, I don't know to how, I mean, the FCA talk about their consultations, but I don't know to how, to what extent they have investigated the understanding of consumers in relation to the warnings they, they give. But there's a whole literature uh, from behavioral economists yeah. on um, what behavioural economists would see as irrational um, consumer mm-hmm. consumer decisions and um, favouring short term over the long term, guided by all sorts of heuristics that you know have salience for them at a particular time. Yeah. Um, and you know, you you would say, oh, oh this is. Fair. I mean, this 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 body of literature is extensive, but it's it's only within the last ten years or so I'd say it, it has achieved any real prominence, mm-hmm. and it makes you think that. The, the premise of consumer protection policy that we are dealing with rational people mm-hmm. who, given the right information, will make the right decisions is seriously misguided. <laughs> and, and that then encourages, you know, a more kind of, well, not openly paternalistic, but nudging sort of mm-hmm. approach that if we can set the defaults in a clever way, yes. then these consumers who will otherwise make bad choices, they're actually, their own inertia will mean they, could, they just stay with the default. and. Right. You know, the great example of that is on, pe- you know, the one on pensions, where if, if when you join a new organisation, the, the welcoming letter says we have a pension scheme here right. to which you are, if you wish, you can, you can opt in mm-hmm. and contribute, and these will be the benefits, um, versus the letter which welcomes people in terms that we have a pension scheme from which you can opt out, right. um, if you so wish. And the evidence is that the opt-out letter will leave about 80% of the employees 80% of the employees in, in the pension scheme. Yeah. Uh, whereas the opt-in, you're only picking up maybe 20% of people. So it's reversed. Yeah. yeah, it's reversed, yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that saying, well, yeah, the regulators have a responsibility to make sure that the consumers are properly informed. Uh, it doesn't follow from that, that consumers then act in a way that, that you expect them to act. Right, thank you. Mm. So perhaps just expanding on that, a little bit is so has that overall rationale that we've seen in financial regulation has been largely about information yeah fair to say as far as consumers are concerned yep. but perhaps it's moving now towards something that's a bit more interventionist mm-hmm. or perhaps protectionist would that would that be fair a fair um, summing up i would be fairly cautious about broad sweep generalizations okay. and but i mean i think that's right and i think that the i know we're going to talk about the sandbox in a minute you know this is seems to me to be a smart ex ante check on things which right. is uh, i say in, in 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 health and medicine there's a great premium on on ex ante checking of stuff before it gets out there mm-hmm. and can harm anybody the sandbox is is trying to do that, that in an area which is conspicuously innovative. Okay, well, well, let's let's move on and talk about the sandboxes. Yeah. 
so in terms of lessons that legal services mm. regulators can learn from financial regulators, yeah. obviously the sandbox seems to be one of those things. Yeah. And there is some preliminary application going on in the legal sector now. So perhaps we just talk uh-huh. about that and why it's relevant to, to the legal sector. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, any, any, any products which are innovative, but which could potentially harm consumers, mm-hmm. but also benefit them, uh, which have uncertain characteristics, but which don't get really developed because the regulatory requirements for approval or authorization are just too stringent, yeah. then this means that we don't really know whether these products would or wouldn't have benefited consumers. Right. And the sandbox seems to me to be a, a really clever way of, of trying to take account of the interests of innovators and yeah. get them to first base with this, not neglecting the interests of consumers because you know the various arrangements can be made to protect consumers. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the regulators are closely sitting on board with these mm-hmm. uh, pilots or trials to see how they go um, and although it's quite resource intensive I suppose yes. you know uh, and and still not involving that many parties but potentially it's it looks like a really good idea I, I suppose the logic of it is that you don't really know how something's going to perform until you expose it to the market no and this is a sort of controlled way of yeah. doing that yeah is there an issue though still that because it is under observation yeah that you might still get different results. Yeah. And that there's that sort of, um, once you start looking at something, it behaves differently than yeah. when you're not looking at it. Absolutely. I mean, although it's not an example from the, the services sector, mm-hmm. if you think about environment, GM being trialed in laboratory conditions, first of all. Right. And then, you know, within contained conditions, and it looks okay. And then you have controlled releases into the environment, mm-hmm. and things don't pan out in quite the way you expect because the environment out there is different. Yeah. So I suppose by analogy, you can say, yes, okay, the controlled environment of the, of the sandbox mm. is one thing. Once it gets out into the real world, then maybe different variables come into play. Okay, so the sandbox is, well, better than just trying to predict what would happen or, for example, for lawyers sitting around the table trying to guess how consumers are going to behave. Yes. Sort of I, I, so you do get the idea of how the company might behave, how the consumer might behave, how the product might function. Yeah. But it maybe isn't absolutely... 100% like putting it out no into the market and again I mean again you could say well compare this with clinical trials right yeah. right so phase one clinical trials first time this this drug has been tried in humans you know we've tried it in in animals non-human animals before right but we don't know how humans will react okay it doesn't kill them Although sometimes, it, you know, you find it that people can be made very ill. Okay, but suppose it gets through phase one. Well, you could say, well, at that point, why don't we now let people get a hold of it? That, mm-hmm. In the paper, I talk about those right to try laws yes. and debates in America, where people do want to get a hold of highly experimental drugs before they got to the point of, into phase two, seeing whether they are at all efficacious, mm-hmm. and phase three, seeing whether they're more efficacious than comparable drugs that are already available. So in drug development, it's a very long road indeed, mm-hmm. uh, from you know phase one right through to approval. Far too long for these financial products, I would say. I mean, and after all, it's out in the market. If it if if the product doesn't attract the interest or the demand that you have expected Mm -hmm. it's a failed product okay you know well that's not the end of the world for uh, unlike a drug that turns out to be a complete dud when you've invested a huge amount of money in it so are there sort of generic challenges and principles that legal services regulators should be aware of that you can sort of derive from what 
from medicine, from finance, and, and yep. the other sectors? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, in, in the paper, I say there are three high-level general or generic challenges yeah. that regulators face. I mean, one is a challenge, but we're particularly thinking here about national or regional regulators. Okay who perhaps have the first big stab at setting the framework for a new technology, mm-hmm. like the Data Protection Act or the Human Fertilization Embryology. I mean, the first problem is this problem of regulatory connection and sustainability. But right. here, here, here's a technology coming over the horizon. We don't really know what to make of it. We don't know what the benefits, what the risks are, but there's pressure to do something about it. But we don't really know what to do or how to do it, when to do it. Okay. Um, when we do do it, particularly if it's in a hardwired legislative form, people demand a lot of precision. And before you know where you are, the technology or its application has moved on. Yeah. Uh, and you see this time after time that big legislative schemes have to be brought in for a serious overhaul. Yeah. You know, they just yeah, they just no longer correct map onto the uh, no, no longer fit for purpose. Yeah. So that's the first challenge. And then the second challenge is, well, there's always the challenge about compliance and and sort of regulatory effectiveness. And and a huge amount of regulatory scholarship is dedicated to the question, finding what works. You know, what Mm -hmm. does work? How do we do? How can we be smarter? How can we be more responsive? You know, what what does better regulation look like? I mean, the Legal Services Board is committed to principles Mm -hmm. of better regulation or good regulation in the case of the FCA. There are any number of theories about how to do it better, more effectively, and new technologies certainly present their challenges here because I think the, the key to, to effectiveness is, one of the, well, one of the keys for sure, is whether regulators are on board with the regulation that's being proposed. Right. And if they're not, then there's going to be resistance. And, you know, you can see this around new technologies with I mean, one of the classic examples. I don't talk about this in the paper, but is, you know, with file sharing. Youngsters who can use the technology to, to share their music is clearly in breach of copyright laws. The intermediaries who are facilitating this are clearly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, serious breach of that. But uh, it's being done on an industrial scale. And what are regulators supposed to do about this, you know, when there are just so many people uh, involved in infringing the law? Um, so the second problem is about effectiveness. And the third challenge for regulators is connected to that. But it's about the legitimacy and effectiveness of, uh, and acceptability of, of the regulation. And the problem here is that you know, people have very different priorities, very different interests, okay. and very different values. Mm-hmm. And I mean, again, particularly in the area of medicine, uh, we, we've seen some very dramatic divisions between more conservative uh, ethical views mm-hmm. uh, and more liberal progressive views, you know, which, uh, well, you see these in debates about abortion or about euthanasia, but in the use of embryos for research and once upon a time when stem cells were all the, all the rage in the United States and the UK and in continental Europe, there were huge debates and divisions around these issues. So these are the three generic challenges. And to sort of sum things up a little bit, what approaches and practices to take in terms of technology regulation and from other sectors do you think legal services regulators will want to emulate? Yeah, so I think in the paper I, I, I have suggested that the way that the, the government and the ABI handle the problems presented by genetic testing for mm-hmm insurance is is something we might learn from i mean i'm not quite sure how much we can learn from this but that potentially that was going to be a major problem for insurers not just for individual prospective insureds who found that with having to disclose a high risk genetic profile this was not going to i mean either they couldn't get insured or they were facing huge premiums and then it you know where this was scaled up and you had adverse selection in insurance pools Mm -hmm. 
then those pools would no longer be economically sustainable right. uh, because the insurers will be ending up with a pool of very high-risk people. Yeah. It just will become exorbitant, just not good business for them. And it wasn't just economic questions here that were at stake. There were questions of fundamental fairness about whether mm-hmm. people who were important heads of insurance not able to get this because they hadn't done well in the genetic lottery, and that just right. didn't seem fair. Initially, that was handled by a sort of moratorium in which the industry agreed it wouldn't ask for genetic tests and uh, wouldn't ask for genetic information except in the case of certain very, very high-value policies. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there was, a, there was a feeling at the time that maybe that wasn't t- entirely satisfactory because it was just for now kind of thing and but we're now in the sixth iteration of the code okay and it, although again i don't have sort of inside information on this it looks to me from the outside as though this has worked managed the risk pretty well okay and the characteristics here are that industry is able to modify the terms and conditions of the code when when the scenery changes when the risks change which gives them flexibility so they're not locked into something that is not viable for them. There's a right. certain amount of flexibility for the regulatees, but equally, I suppose, for regulators too, on the government side in that sense. Uh, I mean, the other thing is that nothing's been hardwired here. So now I know that that kind of close cooperation mm-hmm. is perhaps just the kind of thing that's difficult for the legal services regulators to, to emulate. Right. Because, I mean, insofar as they can do this, they're working with their regulatees, provided that this is within the parameters of protecting the as consumers as well, mm-hmm. then then I don't think that there's a risk associated. That would seem to me to be a desirable thing to do. But I know that's, that is challenging. There's a second thing that, well, in other sectors where there have been examples of consultations that haven't worked well, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, there have been plenty of consultations that have, I think, worked pretty well, particularly right. from the HFEA. And where you know you're on sensitive territory then it's very important to consult. But equally, and I've said this before in relation to AI, where we don't really know what what the space looks like, then consultation is a way of trying to inform ourselves about this. Unfortunately, I don't think that regulators in other sectors can offer you very great advice on how to run the consultation. Okay. This is one of the, you know, for every, I, you can say some very general things about this. And clearly, if what you are doing is just trying as it's sometimes said, sort of get your message across more effectively. Mm-hmm. The consultation isn't really about hearing what other people have to say. It's just about persuasion. Right. People then see through that. Then that just blows the credibility of the exercise. I think you have to be in good faith. You really want to know what consultees do think about mm-hmm. this. And you have to be you know, minded to act on what you... You, know, you can't act on everybody's view because sure. no. you'll get a plurality of views no. back. But... You know, you want to hear what they feel strongly about and what they're more relaxed about. And in the paper, I do talk about some guidelines that the Royal Academy of Engineering and um, it was the Royal Society in a joint report on nanotechnologies 15 years ago, I think. Okay. One of the best things, I think, that's, that's out on, on how to consult. Yeah, that's, that's certainly something okay. that's important. So we've got trying to come up with a way that we can be flexible. Yep. In terms of how we regulate. Yep. And as as technologies develop. Yep. And then consult hmm. and make sure that people, whether that's the the public or the the industry the yes. sector, is on board. Yeah. That sounds like sort of slightly thin gruel. Yes. For, you know what I mean. Yeah. But if you don't do those things, mm-hmm. then the, the the ramifications can be quite serious. And, you know, you regret, yeah, regret okay. not having done simple things that need to be done. Roger, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been extremely useful and interesting. If you haven't already, please listen to our podcast with Alison Hook on International Legal Services Technology Regulation. And we'll also be releasing more podcasts and papers later this year. So please keep an eye out on our channels for those.